meeting over to our brother Steve for his message from the Word of God. Thank you. Will I, uh, will I need this microphone or can I move it? Well, there's a few things I'd like to say. First of all, thank you for inviting me. It's a real privilege and honor. I consider that and say that very seriously and honestly to you all to be here, to have so many lovely conversations. Um, many don't know this, but at one point in my life, Aaron Renth was a bit of a mentor to me. I can't imagine that being true, but it was. And um, he was. we were at camp together. Now, Aaron is actually way older than me. I'm sure he's quite the age of Methuselah, but I was there when he was there. And we at camp, and we had a lovely time. Now, my camp years I have very fond memories of, and uh, one of the most important aspects of camp life is family camp. And what I'd like to just simply do is just say a few words about a family camp in your area. But I want to introduce it by this little story. This is kind of the commercial part, so bear with me. Um, about 10 years ago, my wife and I were involved in the space of two years. We were involved in about 10 weddings. They were not all my children. They were others' children. My children were too young to be married at that point. And, and one of the things that impressed us was how these parents were to raising these children, and they all were, were getting to know each other and, and really marry each other. How did they meet, and how did this happen? And one of the things that they said, in fact, they said this over and over as we counseled their young people and then performed the ceremonies. As that all happened, we asked the parents, I said, now how did you get the two young people? How did they meet? Everyone said two words, family camp. Family camp. Now, I grew up going to family camp, and then I was in school, and then I went back to family camp several years later, and I have to tell you, it's been a real blessing to my family. We've not missed a single one for the last 12 or 13 years. It's been a real benefit to my family. Now, there's a family camp coming up at the Skyland Bible Conference. I've actually never heard of this until two years ago. And um, I was asked to come there. And um, I have to tell you, it was a lot of fun. All right? Let me tell you the first thing. These guys are mostly from North Carolina, right? And they love basketball. And so they have, at this conference, they have this young men, old men basketball tournament. Now, I'm the guest speaker, and fortunately, I hope I look a little bit young, but they concluded me in the old men. And so what happened is they, they're very serious, and they got this stadium. It's kind of one of these, like, you know, pit stadiums and the bleachers, and they say, now, they do it like this. Mr. Price, do you happen to play basketball? Well, just a little bit. I, you know, I'm 6'8 and everything, and I can sort of dunk it, but, you know, I'm a little old for that, you know. Mr. Pross, would you, would you like to play for the old man team? Well, sure. So I thought it was going to be a pickup game, right? So I go down to the stadium at the right hour of the day. This is like the Final Four. <laughs> They've got balloons and horns and uniforms. And I walk in and say, Mr. Pross, it's so good to see you. Here, put on this jersey. So I put on the jersey. Okay, now I'm the speaker. You know, I've got to speak in a couple hours. I can't be dead in the, you know. <laughs> And so, so I, I get in there, and I'm not kidding. They have strategy. They have playbooks. They have the whole thing. 
And I'm going, oh, you know, I think I'll, I'll be a sub. I'll sit here and you go play, okay? And so they go out and they like the half the, half the game. They're running around and I'm telling you, the older men are older because they can't breathe. And so they come <laughs> over to me and they say, here's your breath. It's hard for you. They go in. Okay. So I get out there and I'm running down the court, you know. Now, the truth is, I've never played organized basketball. <laughs> My games of basketball were at camp. And you know what we do at camp? We hack you. Okay? So I'm playing and I'm running back and forth, just sort of taking up my space, acting like I'm doing something. And it's that proverbial moment when they pass the kid the ball on the court and he doesn't know what to do with it. And I'm down at the end where we're, and it's their goal and they give me the ball and it's like, well, it goes into slow motion again. Shoot the ball. <laughs> I get that ball and I'm looking, I look left, I look right, and I go, Bank it in, baby. And I immediately take myself out of the game. I want, want to end on a high note. I certainly don't want to be the guy that lost the game for. Him. Now, don't be scared about that, but this happened at this camp right here. Okay. Now, it just so happens I'm embarrassed to say this part, but another guy named Price will be there. His name's Larry Price. So you get two for the price of one. <laughs> I was working on that all afternoon. <laughs> but seriously, uh, the topic, the theme, I think Phil Geikema is one of the organizers. He, he emailed us several, actually last year, and, and the theme is going to be on the family. And uh, I tell you, it's just a lovely time. And if that's if not that camp, I, I just recommend embracing that idea. And I, I encourage you to invite those who who may not be able to go on a vacation. You know, this... this uh, the, the camp there, how they have a website and everything. But, you know, if, if, it's, if it's too too much cost, I think there would be an ability to work with you. So please check out this situation, this brochure. I'm sure it will be posted somewhere. And I just recommend it highly. And if not this camp, I go to another family camp where the word of God is preached and where the young people are able to see other families that value the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. And I tell you, it's a great, great foundation for our young people. I really recommend it, and it's been very helpful for me personally over the years. And I've had an opportunity to hear excellent ministry and be blessed by the other men there. So what I'd like to do this evening is I'd like to speak um, about something that is uh, uh, perhaps something that you may not think of on a regular basis but it is something that you would um, actively participate in on a daily basis. And I would say to you that especially when the local meetings of the church are called, you are actively um, embracing this truth. But it's such an um, overwhelming truth, it's such an involved, permeating truth, that you may not even realize that it's part of your life. It's really part of your existence. It's part of your worldview, believe it or not. And what I'm going to talk about this evening is, the, uh, is a brief sketch of being a believer priest. Now, before I start this discussion, which, I'm sorry, it's going to take about an hour, okay? So just, just give it up, okay? It's an hour. <laughs> just, I'm not going to, it's there. It's an hour. Now, 
Having said that to you, I want to introduce this tonight by a story from the Old Testament. Now, the story from the Old Testament is actually found in your Bibles, but in order to find it and make sense, I want you to turn to your maps. <laughs> you didn't know that was a book in the Bible, did you? Turn to your maps in the back, yeah, in the back of your Bible. Okay, now the map that you want is on uh, page 1,653. <laughs> Sorry. Go to the map of Israel like this. Do you have one? I'm sure you have one. It's, it's just a long map of Israel. Look for it. Look for it. Not the Jerusalem map, the big map of Israel. You see it somewhere? Do you have it? Okay, very good. Very good. All right. Now, on the coast, there is a city of Joppa. Can you see that? It's on the Mediterranean coast. Can you see that? It's, it's roughly uh, direct, just, just north of the Dead Sea, maybe... Uh, couple of inches, uh, a third of the way north of the Dead Sea going to the Sea of Galilee. And as you come over, you can see the city Joppa. Have you found that? Okay, very good. Now, if you have a, a fairly detailed map, you will notice that there is a river that extends somewhere near Joppa and extends directly or more or less directly eastward, transversely across the country, going from my right to my left or from your left to your right. So it's, it's a little river there. Can you see that? Does, do your maps have that? It's about like this. Okay, can you see that? Okay, that is the Ahajalon Valley. So still look at your map for a second. If you notice that near the coast, it's relatively flat. If you go over just a small section, maybe an inch or so, half an inch, you are in the hill country of Israel, and it's called the Shephelah, the Shephelah. Now, in the Shephelah, which is the lowlands, not the mountains yet, the lowlands, you will find that there are five valleys that go roughly from Joppa, extending south down towards Gaza. Gaza's in the Philistine area south, right? And you've got these valleys that go transversely, that is, cutting across the grain, left or left to right, according to your map, and those valleys are the Ahajalon Valley, the Valley of Elah. Does that sound familiar? What happened in the Valley of Elah? Well, there's this big dude and this small dude, and the guy got killed with a stone, right? You recognize that one? David and Goliath. Would you like to hear about that tonight? No, no. Maybe another day. That's one of my favorite, though. It, to be honest with you, VeggieTales did not invent it. It's in the Bible. Now, the other valleys, and let's see if I can remember them now, the Ahajalon Valley, the Valley of Elah, Gerizim Valley down south, there's, uh, oh boy, there's the uh, Lakesh Valley, and then I'm, I'm blanking on the fourth one, sorry about that. The Ahajalon Valley is very important. Now, around that river of Ahajalon, if you were to trace it eastward, you actually would end up just north of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is in the mountain area. So whoever could gain control of the Ahajalon Valley would actually be the protector of the eventual capital city of Israel. Guess who was charged? What tribe was charged for this protection? The tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan. That was Dan's little corridor. Now, in the book of Judges, you will find that the tribe of Dan was unable to conquer their land. In fact, they were forced to stay towards the Shephelah, towards upper and lower Beth-Huron, 
which are cities along that river valley. And as a result of that, they got frustrated. And what they decided to do was to move to take a group of roughly 600 men and look for another piece of property. You know where they went? Well, if you look at your map, and you look at your map, and it says the Sea of Galilee up here. If you were to go now off my map, maybe yours has it, there's a little place up north right about there where my finger is. I'm sorry, I don't have a good map of this for this slideshow tonight. But it's a place called Laish. L-A-I-S-C-H, if I remember right, or L-A-I-S-H. And what they did is they went up north, and they conquered that little town. It was part of the Tyre or Sidon realm, and they were able to conquer it, and they renamed that town and its surrounding region Dan. Now, the problem that happened is simply this. Dan was the first city or one of the border cities and when that had the idolatry established when Jeroboam was trying to turn the hearts of the people towards himself. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a very good idea to move to Dan now, does it? No. And in fact, if you lived all the way up north in that Dan area, whenever there would be kings that would want to conquer Israel, where did they go first? Well, they would come right down through that Hula Valley, and Dan would get picked off first. But wouldn't it have been better to stay in the Ahajalon Valley down south? And wouldn't it have been better to be the guardians and the custodians, the, 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 the guard of, the, of the, the troop that would be the one that would protect the capital of the entire nation? Absolutely. But the Danites failed to realize the value, the intrinsic value, of what they had in their own possession. Now, saints, tonight we're going to talk about the priesthood. And sometimes I think we fail to appreciate the intrinsic value of what we have in the palms of our hands. And we're failing to not only understand it, we're failing to appreciate its value as God sees it. And what we do is we sort of toss it aside. We don't really know what to do with it. And in essence, our heart moves away from the truth and we fail to grasp and value and therefore participate in the grand property that God has given us and we move away from it. Now, my goal tonight is to take the body of Christ here and move us into a position where we stay in the inheritance that God has given us and to not only understand it, but to appropriate it. Are you with me? Okay, can you see that from the history of Israel? I hope so, because that's what I think the Lord wanted me to say. <laughs> All right. I'd like you to turn with me now to Second um, uh, Peter. Hmm. may have pulled up the wrong show. I'd like you to turn with me to First Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read a couple of passages in succession. And they will be in the following places. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. We're going to then turn to Revelation chapter 1, and I think it's verse 6. And then we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10. So that helps you know where we're going. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to establish the priority of this concept and the heart of God to you. I want you to see the value of this concept. 
Now, many would say to me, Steve, Steve, really? Believer, priest, that's not mentioned too many times in the New Testament. And the actual answer is you're right. But it's not how many times it's mentioned, it's where it's mentioned. So, Peter, I said, I was going to say excuse me to the table. <laughs> excuse me. Okay. So, Peter is writing. Now, when did Peter write? So he's about uh, two-thirds away, before that. He's about 50 A.D., 55 A.D., somewhere in there. He's kind of in the middle of the first century. And so he's writing this, this letter. And what he's doing is he's going to mention the concept, okay? So it's to the first century, and I could say first-generation believer. So let's read it, and I'll read it now in, in completeness. <clears throat> Verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect precious. And he who believes in him, on him, will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, oh, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, meaning those who are disobedient in faith, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word, meaning they haven't believed, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but who are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, I say that with great emphasis and enthusiasm. Peter is writing this letter to this particular group of people roughly in the middle portion of the first century, and he's introducing these concepts of the believer priest. We say, well, Steve, that's only one time mentioned in the New Testament and the epistles. True, it's written to the first century believers, but now let's turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6 now, you have to ask yourself, if you're trying to be a careful Bible student, you would ask yourself, now, when was Revelation written? Well, Revelation is authored by our dear friend, our apostle John. It is thought by tradition that John had been ba banished to the island of Patmos, and he was banished there because of a disfiguring, torturous event that happened to deal with some type of boiling liquid. And it was so, apparently, was so grotesque in his appearance, he was banished to the island of Patmos, which, by the way, was still inhabited. There was a town on the island of Patmos itself. And there he authored this particular letter where God had given him divine revelation and vision. That sounds kind of weird. I'm not making it up. It's there in the text. Now, in the process of writing this letter, he, he writes some of these important words for us. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 4 so that we can capture the context. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from, he, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You know what we call that? Forgiveness of sins. Did you hear about that this morning? Yes. Now look at the next verse. 
who has made us kings and priests to our to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, here our friend, the Apostle John, who, by the way, ended up spending the rest of his life at the uh, city or the village of Ephesus. And he apparently was in the church of Ephesus. I don't know what you think, but I would have loved to be in Ephesus. John, are you doing anything for, say, lunch, dinner, and supper? Because I just want to talk to you about your whole life. Right? That would be a great place to be. So, and, and, and John writes this little, little phrase, and he's writing it now in the latter half of the century. Now we're talking around 85, 90 A.D., and yet the concept is still recorded for us in the Scriptures in another portion by another author. So it seems to me that it's mentioned only three times in, in direct format, but it's timing. The time that it's mentioned at the middle portion and then at the end, that seems to me that it's a concept that's ongoing. Yes, it is. Now let's turn over to chapter 5. In chapter 5, we've changed the setting. The setting is now in heaven because this is a divine revelation of the days to come, that which is to come. And we find that there is a certain individuals who are, who are pictured in the text. And one of those groups of people would be the 24 elders, which I believe would represent the church. Now, notice what it says. We'll begin reading for context's sake. And, uh, oops, I lost my place. Forgive me, please. We'll begin reading in verse 8. My eyes are blurry for some reason, so let me pull out my glasses. Oh, here we go. Now, when he had taken the scroll, that's talking of the Lord Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. I really love the allusion to the title deed of the universe there of the world that was alluded to this morning by one of our brothers. For you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And notice this, and have made us kings and priests to our God. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Middle of the first century? Into the first century? In heaven? You think the concept then is now stretching across all these dimensions of recent time and into the future? Yes! That's why the concept is so valid. That's why priesthood of the believer demands our attention because it's something that was crafted, if I may, at that point when Peter wrote about it, but it's something that will continue on, as it were, into eternity and such that we will sing about it in a coming day and our verbiage, our lyric will not change. You have made us kings and priests to our God. So it's valuable. Do not be the Danites that fail to value property you've been given. It will be part of your song for an eternity to come. Are you with me on that? Can you see that? Okay, very good. Now, having said that to you, let's now try to establish some definition. We'll talk a little bit about where it originated. We'll talk a little bit about how it's been demonstrated, and we'll give some exhortation. And I'll try to do that before midnight. All right, it's, it's tough. This is a tough message to give because I have to not be distracted and I have so much ADD I can't handle it. I'm missing my pointer. 
Ah, ha. Okay, here we go. Now, if you look in the if you look up the word in the scriptures, and if you look in the Old Testament, you will find that the word simply means one who mediates or or officiates concerning religious or sacred things. That's the generic definition you can get out of any lexicon. But what's interesting here is that the root of the word may be from an Aramaic source, which means to draw near. The idea or the imagery is simple, that the person who is officiating or taking care of religious things, sacred things, is specifically having the goal of drawing near to God and, the converse is true, drawing, uh, drawing God near to man. This is what the priest does in the Old Testament definition. Now, let's see if we can, if we can trace that through some of the scriptures. Now, this is the part where you just want to listen, where we take, excuse me, too much time to actually go through the whole thing. Leviticus chapter 1 through 7, the priest is assisted in bringing the worshiper's sacrifice to God. Very important. If you remember that, that's a section, a chapters uh, 1 through 7 on taking the sacrifices. The people bring them to the priest. The priests assist in their, in their execution. They bring that worshiper's sacrifice to God drawing near to God, man drawing near to God. That's the idea. The same idea is reflected in Leviticus 16, where the priest who would represent man to God concerning their sin would lay their hands on the sacrifice, confessing the sins of the people. Again, the priest drawing man near to God. See that idea? It's, it's kind of woven in the word, and it's woven in these practices that are given to us in the Old Testament. But what about God drawing near to man? What about God drawing near to man? Well, again, in Leviticus 1 through 7, those sacrifices that are mentioned, multiple times it says as the offering is given, it is a sweet aroma to God. In other words, that's an inference, that's an allusion to God drawing near to man. The sacrifice is pleasing. God draws near in this sense. He's saying that is a beautiful fragrance to my spiritual being I love the aroma of what is being stated and done. I love the sweet smell that it gives to my heart. You see what he's saying? God drawing near to man. The same thing in Leviticus chapter 16. God draws near to man in the atonement. And when I see the blood, there will be atonement that's given. I will cover over that sin before the mercy seat. And, of course, we know in the New Testament that that was something God did until the time of Jesus Christ when the ultimate payment for sin would be given and the ultimate sacrifice would be before us. So my point simply is this. God, or man drawing near to God, but the opposite is true, God drawing near to man. Same scriptures, Leviticus 1 through 7, Leviticus 16, uh, we can extract the concept at both levels. Now, what does the New Testament say about this? The New Testament definition is one who sacrifices or tends to things associated with sacrifices. That's the Greek definition, and the idea, its root, carries the notion of something set apart, something holy. In other words, you're not just set apart for taking care of the, the business of recording uh, the records for the town clerkship. You're not just doing things for the government and collecting taxes. No, 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 no. You are doing things that have a special significance, a special set-apart duty. Not many would have this duty. So it's the idea who is setting apart, devoted to the business of sacrifices and responsibilities, the things that concern that which is holy. So if we put them together, oh, excuse me, 
We can see this in our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. He draws God near to man, seeing that we have a great high priest after he offered up one sacrifice for sins, perfected uh, forever those who are being set apart. He's drawing us to himself. He's drawing him to us in his own way, in his own sacrifice. And if we look next, we also see that our great high priest is drawing us near, let us draw near with a true heart. You see, this is our great high priest showing us the definition in his activity. So if we can summarize it, we'll summarize it in this way. One who brings God to man and man to God. One In the New Testament, one who attends sacred things. If you put it all together, one who attends sacred things to bring God and man together. That's the idea of the priest, bringing together. So... When we come to the New Testament, we are introduced this concept in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 9. And so what I'm going to do now is not only have I spent some time trying to define it, I want you to see where it originated. Now, in order for you to understand this, I want you to picture with me a moment, a, a, a certain delicate moment, perhaps in the life and the early premarital stages of a young couple. You see... When I proposed to my wife, she was 19, actually. Now, don't you young people get any ideas? My daughter, she was interested in this young man. She married him, and she was 18 years old. She said, Daddy, I believe Mama was 19. I said, yeah, we don't talk about that. She got married a few years later. I, 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 I caved in. But here's the thing. When I went to propose to her, I took her to a fancy restaurant in Ponca City, Oklahoma. Think of Ponca City. It's, there are no fancy restaurants in Ponca City. It's called Ponca City. It's 30,000. They have an international airport. Huh. Right? So we got, we go, I go there, and we go to a place called the Rusty Barrel. That was the finest establishment they had. I mean, you know. So I went beforehand, and I bought a nice rose. It was a Brilliant red color, the reddest I could find. I took the ring, and I went and I talked to the maitre d' and the manager, and I arranged it so we would have a certain table. We had uh, picked our ring out. Our, that's a great story in and of itself, but we see we, we were poor as dirt and had no money, and, and so we ended up buying a, a solitaire diamond and borrowing Grandma's teeth, and we made the ring. That's how it happened, yeah. They weren't in Grandma's mouth at the time. And so we, we got this little ring, and I, I took it to the restaurant, and I put it so, and I put the flower in, and the table was set. And, and so I said, well, I'd like to take you out for dinner. So we get in my very, very fancy Toyota Corolla that was kind of rusting. And, and we drove to the restaurant, and I got out of the car, and I swept around, and I opened her door, and she comes out as, as, as just as... as uh, elegantly as can be imagined. She's just gloriously beautiful, still is, I might add. And I close the door, and we, we whisk each other. I whisk her inside, and I pull out the chair, and we sit down, and we're enjoying the appetizer. We're enjoying... Pretty good story, isn't it? Yeah. We're enjoying the meal, and we're enjoying the dessert. And, and at some moment in the dinner, I actually come, Travis, thank you for volunteering. And I get on my knee, and I hold her hand. Boy, you're not like Janet at all. <laughs> And I say to her, you, my darling, I can't do that with you. 
Emily, thank you for volunteering here. You, my darling, are the one for me. Oh, thank you. We're pretending, honey. Okay. <laughs> Would you please marry me? You're turning red. That's really kind of cute. Now, I do that, and of course, she says, yes. Okay? Now, I am taking the time to pour out my heart. I'm speaking from, as the Old Testament would say, from the bowels, right? From the innards. I'm giving it all to you, and I'm letting you know this is how much I love you, and I, I want to be with you forevermore, right? That's what I'm saying. Now, wouldn't it be atrocious if she did this? Oh, that's nice. Hey, can we get another dessert? <laughs> but, but, you stop the tape. I'm, I'm proposing, you know, forever, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Very nice friend. Hey, I, the show starts at nine. That's, can we get on with this? If she would have responded like that, which she didn't, men, she did not do that, wouldn't that just sort of take away the sincerity and the outpouring of my soul to her? Would it not? Would you agree with that? Okay, I got to say, are you agreeing with me or are you sleeping? I can't tell. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Tim, wake up. Okay. Now, in essence, that's exactly what happens when God introduces the concept to the Old Testament nation of Israel. So in the New Testament, now let's look at it. It should be in 1 Peter now, 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to notice the terminology that is used. And then I'm going to take you, as you can see on my slide, I'm going to take you to Exodus, and I'm going to show you how the response that I demonstrated in my illustration was exactly the response of the children of Israel. Therefore, this can be seen as one of the most tender and important heart felt truths from God himself. All right, so let's look at it. All right, so we're going to look at chapter 2 and verse 5. Notice the terminology. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices of praise. Notice the phrase holy priesthood. Now, there's a lot of meaning there. I'm not going to talk about that yet. I just want you to notice the phrase holy priesthood. Now let your eyes wander down the page to verse 9, and it says this, but you are, and notice the repetitive nature of these phrases, you are a chosen generation. You are a holy nation. You are a royal or kingly priesthood. You are a holy nation. Oh, excuse me. You are his own, uh, uh, where did I leave it at? Or a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. All right? Notice that repetitive-like characteristics given to this group of people that are given to us in the New Testament by the, by the pen of Peter. Now, turn to Exodus chapter 19. Remember the terminology I just read, but turn to Exodus chapter 19, all right? You will, when I read this, you will hear some of the same terminology. So that's where I make the connection. And upon making that connection, we will then examine the events of chapter 19 and the end of chapter 20. So bear with me. Verse 5. 
Now, therefore, he's talking, oh, excuse me, let me set the stage. We are at Mount Sinai. Sinai. I can never say that word, okay? We're at that mountain, okay? And at that mountain, we have just taken about a several-week journey, if not months' journey. We actually are now at Sinai, and I, I believe, as best as I can tell, it truly is in the Sinai Peninsula. And there are several areas of location that it could be. There are many theories about it. But there's one that I think is probably the most accurate, as best we can tell. And upon, we, upon our entrance into this flat plain with a mountain in front of us, what happens is God now visits his people. And it says he comes down to the mountain, and the mountain will quake. The mount, there will be trumpets, there will be smoke, there will be fire, there will be voices. And you have to admit, it sounded like a nightmare. That is a very frightening thing. Have you ever been in a lightning storm where the lightning is fast, so quick, that it's clapping itself one right after another? It's boom, boom, boom. It's just a, like, a, like you're in a, a, a type of a, a war zone. Well, you have to realize this is what the people saw. Not only that, they saw smoke, they saw, they heard voice, no person. This was a frightening situation. So here they are at this mountain, and now God speaks, and he says this. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be, notice the verbiage, my own special treasure above all people. Excuse me, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Hey, doesn't that sound like First Peter or Second First Peter chapter two verse nine? Yes, it does. Notice the next phrase: and a holy nation. You see what he's doing in this dispens in this dispensation I'm reading about in this administration of time of 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 God's uh, working with the human race, working in particular with the children of Israel. He is making the offer of the priesthood. He's making them the offer. He's giving them the chance to represent God to man and man to God. He's giving them the opportunity of an in lifetime. And it's not just Aaron here. It's not just the Levites. It's the entire nation. He's proposing. Okay? I put that in quotes, but you get that's the idea. Okay? Now, notice what happens. I'll read some of the text so we can get get a little bit of the flavor. Turn over, please, uh, to verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on that third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai and in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for, excuse me, for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch it or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain, mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him. But he shall be surely, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether man or beast, he will not live. Then the trumpet sounds long, and they shall come near the mountain. Right. So notice that carefully. I tried to show that that they were they were separated in their physical uh, physical uh, uh, readiness, and they were separated in their physical or in their uh, ability to touch. I mean, you got to admit that. Go tell the people. Can you imagine that? Now, listen, tomorrow on the third day, you need to be all cleaned up, and we're going to go, and we're going to be near the mountain, but not, don't anybody touch it. Because if you touch it, our archers over here are going to run you through, and we've got other people over here who are really expert with stone tossing. Right? That would be 
absolutely terrified. Now notice what it says next. Verse 17. It says this, that Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Can you imagine that? Fire on the mountain. Smoke so billowing. Perhaps there were trees that were burning. I don't know. So billowing that the top of the mountain was not encapsulated by a cloud, but by smoke itself. You could smell it. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. So you're at the base, and the mountain's quaking. That means you're shaking too. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder. So can you imagine that? Can you hear that? You've got to imagine that there. You're there. You're petrified. And it is, says this, and Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. I mean, that would be just an incredible incredible voice like Peter when he said and we were on that mountain and we heard that excellent voice this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased please can you hear that am I the only one that can hear this trying to all right anyway the Lord said to Moses go down and warn the people lest they break through and gaze at the Lord and many of them perish and the next thing you know Moses goes up And God writes with his finger, it says, on the tablets of stone, and he gives us the Decalogue, as I put up here. He gives us the tablets of stone, which which outline the ten sort of synopsis or summary principles of his entire treatise that he gives in terms of this covenant. Moses is gone. Now Moses returns. Turn over to chapter 20, and I want you to read with me in verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. Now at this point, uh, never mind, I was going to crack a joke, but we won't. Okay, and when the people saw it, they trembled and no, wait, 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 they trembled in what? What's that say? They stood afar off. But I thought a priest was to draw near. You're right. They're not. Look what it says next. And they said to Moses, yeah, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak to us, lest we die. Okay, that's like my wife saying, uh, can we get on with this? I mean, time's wasting and I've got things to do. You know what they're saying? They're saying God is offering them something that is desperately passionate in his being. He wants the separated mankind to be joined to himself. He singled out the Abraham family. He singled out those who would be descendants from Abraham. And now, in a miraculous way, we deliver the children of Israel. Not a few months before, we've come to this mountain, and God, in a moment of of pouring out his being to them, says, I want you to be that holy nation and that holy priesthood, that kingly priesthood. I want you to be mine. And the Lord comes down. The sights are, are, are tremendously frightful and, and terrifying. And yet the presence of God is there. And they say, no, thank you. I'm God. Moses, you talk to God. and We won't. They're rejecting it. Right? That's exactly what's happening. They're rejecting it. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. And this, and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. And so the people, look what it says. It says it twice. Stood afar off. 
That is not the posture of a priest. The priest draws near, not far off. Look at what it says again. But Moses drew near the thickness, the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, and I'll stop right there. Now listen, this is very analogous to you pouring out your soul to your beloved and your beloved saying, I don't know, that doesn't seem that important to me. I'm too scared. You know, in a human way, we can understand how that would be so painful for a fiancé to say that to his beloved, right? And to have that response from his beloved back to the fiancé. We can understand that. We can feel the pain of that expression and interchange. And yet that same type of scenario is actually occurring in this one passage where God is saying, I want you to be my special people. I want you to be my holy nation. I want you to be my, my kingdom of priests. So when we get to the New Testament and a new dispensation of time, a dispensation of God, a new time where God is working with the human soul in a different, in a different manner, the concept is introduced again. Now, if we think it's painful of how it was received or really rejected the first time, should we not even be more careful, O saint, to receive this precious possession of ours as a gift from God, as something he's pouring his heart out to you, and he's saying, I want you to be as close as you possibly can. I want you, O new believer, O old believer, O middle believer, I want you to be my special treasure. I want you to be my holy and set-apart priest. I want you to be my, my kingdom of priests. That's what I've always wanted. I wanted to start it. Then they rejected it. I want to give it to you. It's my present to you. It's your Ahajalan Valley. Possess it. And many a time, we fail to value what we've been given. Right? This is deep, isn't it? This runs deep to the person of God. If I could say it with such reverence to, about the Lord, this runs deep to his being. It comes from his heart. We should not treat it so lightly. We should not treat it without respect or great consideration. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Because I just cannot ignore the truth. It has such great root and such meaning to my God. It therefore should have meaning to me. All right. Oh, boy, we're out of time. Okay. So the people responded, as I said, basically, no thank you. You speak, and the people... You speak and will listen, but let us not speak to God. So the people stood afar off. In the end, Moses was the one that drew near. And in the end, in chapter 28 of Exodus, Aaron and his brothers and sons became those who would serve as priests. Far cry from what was offered in Exodus 19, is it not? So, in the New Testament, the concept is revisited. All of this in our dispensation, yet a new order, not a reproduction of the Levitical priesthood. No, no, no. But the concept is still there. That passion of God's heart is still, I think, being presented to us. 
Now, there is a thing about this holy priesthood. You can turn back to First to Peter chapter 2, please. First Peter chapter 2. And I'll briefly mention this. And this is a, a concept that many have mentioned. I'm not, this is not original with me, but it's quite unique. And notice in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it says a holy priesthood. And if you look down in chapter 2 and verse 9, it's a royal priesthood. Or if we could say it this way, a, a, a kingdom of royal priests, right? A, a real precious thing, uh, a kingly-like stature. Now, what does this mean? Well, there's some imagery involved, which I almost fell off the stage. All right, holy priesthood, the idea here is the same word for saint. The idea of being set apart. The idea of being sanctified. You have a special place, and your special place is to be the one that offers to God, through Christ, sacrifices. No one else did this in the Levitical order except the priest, right? You would bring it, but it was the priest who was intricately involved. And in the same way, you are the only ones on this planet who can legitimately offer to God that which would be acceptable spiritually to him. No one else. He's not going to get it from the Islamic population. He's not going to get it from those who are unbelievers. We are the only ones who have this privilege right there. It is a privilege that I think we actually squander. It's a privilege we actually fail to value. This is not going to come from any other people group, any other nation, any other any other self-help group or club or society. It comes from his people, a holy priesthood. You are designated, set aside for this particular duty. Just like the Danites were the ones set aside to guard the flank of Jerusalem. This is your duty. Let's not treat it lightly. Secondly, notice it says royal priesthood. And this is the idea of of the, of the priests of the king, a real royal stature. Uh, you, you, know, you know, we're not settling for the prince and prince, pr- princes, prince, princes and princesses. We are actually serving the king himself, the idea of royalty. And in this is embedded a little story about Mephibosheth. Remember that idea? He was the offspring of, of Saul. And, and David said, is there anybody else from the house of Saul that I could show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan and also Saul. David, what a, what a man after God's own heart. Normally what you do when you, become in, when you come to power is you execute the previous regime so that they can't raise up kids that have a little vendetta and try to knock you off when you're older. And so what he does is the exact opposite, which is so much like the Lord Jesus. He does not remove his enemies. He brings them into his banqueting hall. And he makes them part of his royal court. That's what happened with Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is brought in and it says, you will forever eat at my table. And remember, Mephibosheth was lame in the legs. That was, he, he was crippled. And in the courts of that day, you do not bring the disease and the imper- imperfect, the, the, those who are physically maimed, into the presence of the king. You don't have that. This is a court where everything is perfect. The table is set perfectly. The people are perfect in their appearance. The, the, the hosts are, and, the, and, the, and the ones tending the court are absolutely pristine. But Mephibosheth, he's granted a place at that dinner table all the time. 
This is what we are. You and I, we are diseased and we're lame and we're undone by sin and we're brought in to be treated like royalty. Oh, saints, we cannot not value the precious truth of what it means to be given the priesthood of the believer. This is incredible. This is something that is precious and let us not fail to value our Ahajalon vow. Now, there is another concept that's tucked in here, and I'll mention it. Notice it says, holy priesthood offer up, royal priesthood proclaim, and the idea is outward. And many have said, and I agree with this totally, that really our function is to, is to be the ones that offer up that which would be acceptable and pleasing, a sweet aroma to him. And for some reason, what is acceptable to him is what Satan has tried to rob from God all of his existence, and that is this. Worship, honor, and majesty. Glory to the great God of all the universe. Satan is constantly trying to steal that back. And he'll do it any way he can. He'll, he'll try to attack your marriages. He'll try to attack your assembly. He'll attack your elders. He'll attack the deacons. He'll attack the children in any way possible to, call, to steal, to kill, to destroy, so that the glory that God rightly deserves is diminished, if not totally removed. Listen, it is our job, it is our duty to maintain. Are you doing that? Never takes, that requires a purity of your life. That requires a self-examination as we ought to do because really the vessel is granted purity at the cross, but the vessel must have its feet washed by the Lord Jesus himself, right? So please, you are, a set-aside priesthood. Do not, do not devalue that. Make sure that you continue in what he's given you in your place. Now, the idea of the royal priesthood, the idea of proclaiming outward, that's something that, that we have the privilege of doing. We first proclaim upward, and then we are in the right posture with a right heart towards God to then proclaim outward. Now, this is a very... Uh, trite truth that we mentioned so, so briefly in the terminology that I just used, but it's not trite at all. You cannot actually serve God outwardly without having that right disposition upwardly. I know you've heard that before, but I am a father, and I have children, and I know how easy it is to look okay on the outside and be totally rebellious to my Lord. Any of you fathers like that here? Oh, I've got it down. I know exactly how to fake it. And I'm afraid that I'm not the only one. I'm afraid that there are many of us in that same boat who are able to hide our true spiritual condition and still go on serving the Lord. And yet, not be right with my God. Not be right with my Savior. Are you sitting here tonight and have that indictment against you? Listen, there are many people who tried to do that in the New Testament. It never went well with any of them. And it won't go well with you either. Eventually the work and the heart will implode upon itself and the true colors of that lack of, of, of relation or fellowship with your heavenly father will come bleeding through and the building will fall down and we look at it later and say, how did that happen? Well, it didn't happen in a minute. It happened over a lifetime. Do not play the game 
of being double-minded in your Christianity. You know what you are? You're not smart. You're actually unstable. Some of you are playing with sin. And you think you've outsmarted the system. I want to ask you a question. Do you think you can outsmart the God that knows everything? I dare you. I double dare you. In other words, it can't be done. You cannot play the game. Your double-mindedness is only one thing in the Bible. James calls it instability. And if you're insta- and, and whether you feel like you're unstable or not, trust me, you are. And God sees it, and you see it, and your loved ones, they cannot be fooled forever. It will eventually come out, and the destruction affects lives. I beg of you, do not be unstable, double-minded in your Christian walk. We cannot be a group of believers in this generation that continues along that path. We have too many monuments of destruction because people before us in my own life has committed that very sin. Hypocrisy is not a compliment. It is an indictment. So I ask you, are you truly living in the right type of priesthood.